She said to me, I think of life as a giant buffet and I want to taste everything. Failing. 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 I know. We talk about failure. Some battles you feel like you lost. And survival. Some battles you feel like you win. It's tough. I had to make some tough decisions. We've all faced failure, but what steps do we take to launch ourselves into success? I'm Sarah Brown. There is life. And a blessing. Achieve your dream. And then what we do with it. And this is Failing Forward. Listeners, I have such a cool guest today. I have Ben Montgomery. He's an author. He's a journalist. He's written four books, two of which I've read. He is a Pulitzer Prize finalist for this article called For Their Own Good, which is amazingly well-written, but amazingly sad. And he most recently wrote the book, The Man Who Walked Backward. And we're going to talk about that today, which is a, a crazy cool story of uh, this man who walked it around the world during the Great Depression. So welcome, Ben. Thank you so much. This is my dream come true. I knew when I immediately when I met you two weeks ago that I would wind up on your podcast. <laughs> this is not Very your excited. dream come true. My God. Good job, though. I mean, it's one of one my, uh, one of thank, my you know what, Ben? Thank you. <laughs> and I received that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, ben, give us we always go over for listeners. Tell us a little bit of background about you. Where did you grow up? Tell us about your fam. Oh my goodness. Uh, I grew up in Oklahoma in a little bitty place called Slick, um, which was an oil town, oil boom town. Uh, I uh, wanted to be a farmer when I grew up. Really? Uh, this, is, this is my sole ambition. Both was of my your, brothers were. Was your dad a farmer? My dad was a Southern Baptist preacher and a long haul truck driver. No. Um, and my grandfather was a, uh, well, he, he was a farmer, quote unquote, farmer in his retirement. He okay. had uh, flown, flown uh, bombers during World War II and then worked for Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and, and the Air Force for the rest of his career. And when he retired, he moved back to his hometown, a place that he fled during the Great Depression in the mid-1930s, uh, Slick, Oklahoma, to uh, buy some land and start a farm and raise up. 10 or 11 grandkids and that so we all kind of grew up That's cool kicking around his farm and chasing cows on some uh, so know, it was cattle it was cows uh wait is uh, cow uh, or hey yeah wait this is gonna sound oh stupid. cattle you're probably right we say cow I mean, yeah. we say cows is that but, right are cattle uh, cows yes okay so <laughs> <laughs> so you grew up there did you how long did you stay in slick did I say it right? Yeah, Slick. Yeah, S L I C K. Maybe I forgot him. Tom Slick, who 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 uh, discovered an oil field there. I was. I mean, I we moved out when I was like preteen. Okay. Uh, moved to the south side of Oklahoma City, um, and I grew up in a uh, very typical like uh, suburban sort of household. Uh, dad, my stepdad, my mom remarried. Stepdad was a a football coach and a high school uh, computer teacher and my mom ran a daycare center. And, um, and I, uh, like I said, wanted to like go back to slick and be a farmer. And I, here's the very quick version. I left home yeah. after high school because I got a, a scholarship to play football at Arkansas tech university, which is the Harvard of West central Arkansas. <laughs> um, 
the home of the uh, Wonder Boys. I don't know. Nice. Sure oh, listeners, listeners, he's got a tattoo. tattoo that I'm showing. He's got a tattoo of a Wonder Boy. Uh, the the um, the thing was, I left my high school girlfriend back home in uh, in Oklahoma City, and so I missed her so bad. After uh, after the first semester, I asked her. I was all of eighteen, but I asked her to marry me, and she said yes. And um, uh, she said, but I, on one condition. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to be a farmer's wife. Interesting. I needed another thing failing forward. This is what we're talking about. I need, I needed another thing if I wanted to get married to this, this, this girl. And so, um, I somehow found writing and, uh, that was to 1999 is when I graduated from college. So that's going, you know, more than 20 years ago. Yeah. Found a way to make a career out of it. Which not many people do. That's hard. It's hard to it's make hard. a career it's in very journalism. Hard, yeah. yeah. And like raise three yeah, children. Is. You have three or four? Three. Three. Three kids. Yeah. So, okay. Can we, can we first talk about um, For Their Own Good? And can, can you give some background around that story? How you got the yeah. Pulitzer Prize finalist award and t- maybe take us through that. Cause I think it's, well, it's it's such a sad story. How did you find out about that story? So maybe share what the story is about. Um, in 2008, five uh, old men who had been wards at Florida's oldest reform school in the 1950s and 1960s, they found each other online mm-hmm. because they were all haunted by the same memory of taking a, a, a brutal, uh, sadistic uh, beating mm-hmm. while, while they were sort of child prisoners at the Florida school for boys in the panhandle town of Mariana. Um, those five who had kind of organically just gone online searching for information for others with shared experiences, they had connected and they convinced the state to let them have a press conference in front of the building in which discipline was meted out on this campus. And, uh, when they were given a platform, they told uh, their stories and it was shocking to the people of Florida. They talked about, in the, again, late 1950s, early 1960s, being beaten until their behinds split open by a man uh, with a weighted leather strap. They talked about uh, sexual abuse. Um, and there was a reporter there for the Associated Press, and he wrote, he covered that little event okay. that the state allowed these guys to have. Word spread like wildfire. As soon as their stories were read, people came out of the woodwork saying, I was there too in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, 1980s. Same thing happened to me. It's brutally mistreated. Um, uh, you know, that number started at five. They called themselves the White House boys, even though they're grown men now. Because the White, they, the White ex- House was the house in which they were beaten. They would be taken to that place, right. right? Taken to that place and, you know, I, I'll save some of the graphic details, but they would, you know, According to them, forced face first down on a on a cot, uh, and they were instructed to um, bite the pillow. Yeah. Some of them said that it was covered with pieces of lip and tongue and blood and vomit, and uh, and then they were told that if they cried out um, or made any noise, then it would start over. And uh, and sometimes several different administrators or guards took turns with the weighted leather strap, and they would have a they would make a game out of it, uh, like how what kind of damage could they do uh, with with blows? Um, but it what it did was uh, scar these you know many hundreds of men yeah. for life. Uh, I talked to guys who 
still have nightmares 50 years later, uh, guys who never told a soul about it, who just got out of that school. And because the guards had said, we know where you live. And if oh you ever talk God. about this, we'll come get you. They just buried it and, um, and you know, it manifested it. itself. That kind of trauma yeah. manifests itself in so many different ways that we're just now starting to understand. But, ben. Um, you know, they talked about living loveless lives and, oh. and a 70 year old men who can't sleep with the lights off at night. Oh you know, my because God. they're afraid somebody's going to come take them out of their bunk at night. So when I read the article, I it w- it overwhelmed me so much with sadness. And so I kept thinking about you, like how, and I always wonder this about writers when they're writing something that's so dark, how do you maintain balance or I guess like get hope again or it would literally bring me down. I, I have faced this question um, many dozens of times because I, I, I talk about the school at a variety of places, mm-hmm. including, you know, universities and uh, archaeological societies and, you know, yada, 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 um, uh, in front of lawyers and so forth. Uh, I did not deal with it in the very best way. Uh, there, there are lots of resources for journalists uh, through uh, great outfits called uh, you know, just for instance, the Dart Center for Trauma and Journalism and things like that. Okay. Lots of resources for, for people who are dealing with this coverage of trauma. Um, I just kind of tried to drink it away for a long time. Like, mm-hmm. like um, you know, and this 10 years of my life. So we're, you know, I'm 43 now. So we're going back to my early 30s when I started covering oh, okay. this in 2008. Um, and it's been a solid decade of coverage from writing about the, you know, the alleged abuse at the school to then discovering a cemetery on the property with an unknown number of graves in it to then following the whole, there was a, a massive uh, anthropological effort where they excavated the graves to try to figure out who these boys were and how they met their deaths. And so the state had said 31 kids were buried on the property, but the these archaeologists and forensic anthropologists found a total of 51 sets of remains buried in the woods around the cemetery. So uh, it, it, it was it was uh, a, it was a long, tedious um, a decade of uh, covering of writing about this stuff. And I think, um, you, you know, uh, it, it, it had severe negative impacts on my life, on my life. And I, I you know, it, this is a sacrifice in my view that, that, that some of us make to fulfill that, that, that edict uh, that, you know, my old mentor, Mike Levine used to talk about in, in Hebrew. It's a, phrase that, that I think goes tikkun olam, mm-hmm. something like that, mm-hmm. tikkun olam. And it's the idea that the world is broken and it's up to all of us to do what we can to try to fix it. Wow. And it's the notion of like repairing, of living your life in a way that tries to repair the world. And I've always thought of my job as a journalist uh, in those regards, like how, what can I do to try to fix things? And so if there's any salve in this whole thing, any like psychological answer to like how to stay sane through uh, a decade of coverage like this. It's just to celebrate the victories for justice. Uh, You know, the state of Florida officially apologized to the White House boys 50 years after they were incarcerated. Um, uh, You know, there have been some promises to try to make amends for, for them. There's still many hundreds of men who are dealing with 
the issues that started when they were boys at that place. So they're looking for reparations still to this day. They feel like their lives were robbed from them by, by men who got their paychecks from the state of Florida. Um, so I would like try to celebrate those little victories. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you know, it has a tendency to balance out, you, but I'm still probably pretty fucked up by it, you know? Yeah. Do you feel like, uh, and I don't know that like the dates when you wrote the other books, well, no, they were after that, I think. So, you know, the man who walked backward and grandma Gatewoods did, mm-hmm. were those easier to write like we're you know because it wasn't as although i i mean there are some stories in the man that walked backwards when you're talking about the ku klux klan that i'm like woo so was it were they yeah. lighter topics a little bit i don't want to say easier to write but different absolutely uh there is a um a great journalist who i think won the very first pulitzer prize for feature writing when it was offered in um, the late 1970s, his name was John Franklin. And uh, I've heard him say that there's essentially a rule in journalism that every uh, journalist is given three sad endings and you have to use them carefully because once you're done with three, you're you're done. You can have no more sad endings. And as we know, life doesn't always work out like that, but consumers of news don't always want to be reading these stories that are just about sadness. And so I always, you know, especially when my work, when my nine to five work, which is never nine to five, it's always more like, you know, eight to nine or whatever. When that work was so dark, um, then my extracurricular work, the book work, I think I wanted it to like be lighter, at least be uplifting and have something that, that, that wasn't so desperate and so sad, like, uh, you know, scores of dead boys. Yeah. Um, there are sad parts in, in, you know, grandma gave its walk. She, she was abused by her hard fisted, uh, stone husband. cold husband for 30 years. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, that stuff, of course, but, the, but both of these stories are resiliency stories. Yeah. Both Grandma Gatewood and the man that walked backward. Yeah. So maybe let's give yeah. an overview of Grandma Gatewood because I I love her story. And then I want you to, and I know her story better than I know about the man who walked back. So I want you to give an overview of Grandma Gatewood. Yeah. Um, in 1955, uh, Emma Gatewood, who was a, a, a mother of 11, grandmother of 22, great-grandmother of two or three, she told her family that she was going on a walk and she, uh, she disappeared and they didn't hear from her for several months when they finally, uh, had no idea where she was. When they finally heard from her, it was by postcard, which she had dropped in the mail in Roanoke, Virginia. And it was a simple note that said something like, when I told you I was going on a walk, I mean, I'm hiking the Appalachian trail, which at that time ran from Georgia to Maine, about 2,100 miles. And she was 67 years old. Unbelievable. Um, and so uh, for her to set out on that kind of a journey was a surprise to a lot of people. And uh, she would become the first woman to ever, what we call solo through like the Appalachian Trail, walk the whole thing in, in one go all by herself. And tell um, tell um, everybody like she wasn't, she didn't have a backpack back then. And so tell about that and her shoes. Yeah, she brought nothing 
that we would typically take for an experience like that. Um, she carried her meager possessions in a denim drawstring sack that she had sewn herself uh, back home in Gallia County, Ohio. Um, inside, she had like a uh, an army blanket. There were no, there's no tent, no sleeping bag, no fire sticks, no flashlight, nothing like that. She was it was minimalist. Um, she had a, a gingham dress that she could shake out if she wanted to, like be presentable, she had an army blanket and a Swiss army knife and some things to eat like peanuts and bouillon cubes and raisins and um, a shower curtain to keep the rain off. And she would need that because there were two hurricanes that raked up the Eastern seaboard in that, in that summer and dumped torrential rains on her while she was exposed on the AT. Insanity. Um, yeah, she was unreal. And she wore through uh, 14 pairs of kids. She loved sneakers. She hated any kind of hiking boots because she had terrible bunions. And so she wore uh, canvas kids that allowed her shoe, her feet to flex a little bit. Um, and, and she finished in 145 days. First woman to ever do it. She, two years later became the first person to ever do the whole thing twice. She, just, she was bored and decided she would do it again. And so um, like, okay. So <laughs> where would she stay? How would she get from place mm -hmm. to place? I think she hitchhiked at times, right? Like, well, she would hitchhike wrong. into town, into town. Well, she would hitchhike okay, into okay. town occasionally. She hiked she it. Never mind. Never mind. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That um, would be cheating. Uh, <laughs> right. It would be, uh, yeah. But, we, but we she, where would she stay? The record books. Yeah, we would. She's out. Yeah. Well, she, she would, she never knew a stranger. She would walk up to houses along the trail and that, you know, there's some scattered about, but she would walk up and knock on the door and just introduce herself and kind of invite herself in for dinner. Or if she needed something, she would explain who she was and what she was doing. And she would ask, you know, and, uh, and people, uh, I think took to her, she made a lot of friends. And so the next, the subsequent trips, she would, um, visit the same people and sometimes they expected her she had written letters and they knew she'd be coming along so they would have like a bag of fried chicken ready to go for it she would you know here she comes she would take the fried chicken and eat on that for a couple of days she always says the um in her experience the larger the house the less likely they were to let you stay which is kind of an interesting observation yes, it is she would never have been able to do it with without the generosity of, of others uh people who lived along the trail yeah and I believe you told me that she knew one day she would be famous and she was, she was on what show was she on? She's on a few. She, yeah, she told her daughters, uh, I, I think the quote was, they're going to build monuments to me, Maybe. something like that. And she said it without a sense of like braggadocio. She said, she said it in a way that like was reasonable and she knew that this would happen. And sure enough, I mean, I don't know of any, Monuments yet, although there, there someone is someone working right now yeah. on a on a on a brass uh, sculpture of some sort, like a stat, like a true. Well, statue. I thought there was something in Hawking Hills. Maybe not. There's a there's a big boulder with a plaque yeah. on it that acknowledges Grandma Gatewood's trail and set and has a, a little bio about her. And then uh, near her hometown, they've erected an historical marker, like an official state of Ohio historical okay. marker okay. on the roadside. Yeah. So wait, so she was, she was on, what was she on the today show or something like that? She was on the today show with Dave Garraway. It was going way back to the fifties and, uh, you bet your life with Groucho Marx. Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So yeah. let's move into our next book. I love the grandma Gatewood story. It's just so inspiring.
and a reminder that we can do anything we put our mind to. All right. right. Tell me about the man who walked backward. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, after I did grandma Gateway's walk, I, I, um, I felt like, uh, like, like I wanted to, um, you know, we've been lionizing men for a very long time, right? Yes. Like, you, there's no shortage of yes, books thank you about for heroic that reminder. things that men have done. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, I thought like writing a book about a woman taking a very long walk um, might not be like the most, it might not just fly off the shelves, right? Yeah. Like it's, it's about a walk. <laughs> um, I mean, it's about more than that, right? It is. But the, but the, and some good you know, stories, great stories. But, uh, but when it sold really well, like right out of the gate and I thought, I want to do this again. And so I found another story about an unsung woman who, uh, was a hero. She was a spy for the U S during World War II and then was summarily forgotten after these amazing spy missions that she did. She was just forgotten and cast off and she kind of disappeared into society and died in anonymity. And so I wrote her story. And then the third one, I was like, I need something else. I don't want to be like, I don't want to be typecast as a guy who only writes books about women. So I found a book about this guy with a crazy idea and and this idea that sort of for him became something of an obsession. It was not uh, an idea that was that anybody really thought would work. It was not uh, good for his family. His wife and winded up divorcing him over it. Um, uh, He made almost no money and Um, explain why he did it (laughs) but he uh here's what happened his his teenage daughter was having a birthday party and some of her friends were over and he was sitting in his den reading the newspaper and this is all in abilene texas way west texas okay and the kids are talking about this is in the in the early 1930s and the kids are talking about how everything under the earth has been done imagine that the 1920s, in the 1920s, they're saying, yeah. they've done it all. Yeah. Like, what else is there to do? Some, and at that point, somebody had flown across the ocean. This was a this was a phenomenal feat that Charles Lindbergh pulled off in 1927. It had never been done before. It had actually, but nobody by nobody as handsome as Charles Lindbergh. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but it was an era of what they called the era of ballyhoo. Like people were one upping each other in all of these crazy physical ways. Like a guy had. Uh, they were doing dance marathons and um, uh, cl- there were human flies who would wear advertising and climb the outsides of tall buildings and small towns across the U.S. What? Um, one, oh, this is, this is, this was like that era. People were just bored to death and like doing extraordinary things. A guy pushed a peanut up Pike's Peak. Stop it. If you've ever been up Pike's Peak, no. it's like 18,500 feet. pushed a peanut. So like, is this when like the Guinness book of world records starts coming out? Yeah, it's exactly the time. Uh, Ripley's Believe It or Not ran newspapers across the country and people saw this and it was entertaining. And and paint the picture, this is right after the Great Depression. So people are looking for things, for hope, and right? You're, you're, you're a little ahead of it. It's actually just before the Great, the Great Depression. This is the end of like the roaring 20s. This was okay. uh, America with money. This was America oh. with style and pizzazz and class. And that whole, the lost generation that came after World War I, yes. they didn't know what to do with themselves. And so some of them were like, 
screw it. I'm going to like, I'm going to try to make a go of it in some kind of crazy way. And so they had, you know, they had two, uh, two guys from Texas who decided kind of on a whim that they were going to try to play croquet from Texas to Washington, DC. And they made it from like San Marcos, Texas, all the way to Dallas, like 200 miles. <laughs> and it's a lot of cra- croquet, it's but so not silly. close to all the way to a guy rode uh, another guy. I don't know all, why all these people were Texans, but guy, this might say something about Texas, but another guy rode a bull from, um, I think some, somewhere in central Texas okay. to New York city. This was like, you just, I'm going to ride my bull. I'm just going to ride my bull. Okay. This was happening. So this was happening across the country. All right. Um, so, so the climate of the, the economy or the world at that time is you're saying it's roaring twenties. Okay. Yeah. And then before the fall. Okay. Yeah. And, 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 and this, and, and we find our guy, uh, whose name is plenty Lawrence Wingo. Love that. He's name. in his early thirties. He's got a young family, uh, uh, you know, a, a wife and a, and a, and a daughter. And he had uh, a successful cafe in Abilene, Texas. Right. And then he got in trouble for selling a little bit of booze during the prohibition, which is also going on at the same time. And uh, got thrown in prison and jail, uh, got himself out. But in the process, he, but because of that and because of, uh, the, the depression was settling, settling in and the stock market had, of course, collapsed in 29, uh, all of those factors led to him losing this cafe. Okay. The bank came for his cafe. Okay. So he had no, no way to make ends meet. So a little bit of desperation and also some like entrepreneurial ingenuity led him to say out loud while his while his daughter's friends are are there in the living room saying there's nothing else we've done everything (laughs) there's nothing else to be done if only we could think of some way something new to do that would allow us to get fame and to make money and he he looks over the top of his newspaper and he says actually i've never heard this just comes out of his mouth i've never heard of anybody walking backwards around the world (laughs) And as soon as he said ben, it, it's just he wrote about so this later. Silly. <laughs> so right? silly. It's so it's 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 insane. Uh, it's insane, it is man. Many, many thousands of miles around the world. Um, not to mention lots of logistical difficulties. So, like, hold on. Can we just, <laughs> how do you can we just, get across the ocean? Right. For instance. So how does he do uh, that? Like and does he does Are we he gonna achieve skip it? ahead in the story? Yeah, we gotta know. I'm sorry, spoiler <laughs> alert. Does is he able to achieve it? I, I'll, I'll give you this. He uh he left in the summer of uh 1931. Yes. Uh he got himself some little mirrors that he could fix to the outside <laughs> of his glasses so he could see, yeah, so he could see behind him. He left Abilene and uh you know had no idea how he would make money. He left without a penny trying to drum up some advertising. So he's talking to like shoe companies and, right. you know, tire companies, anybody who made rubber or anything, anything that had to do with the roads or uh, whatever, but he couldn't get anybody. This is a great depression. Nobody was advertising. Uh, he still did. He started selling postcards for tw- of himself, a picture of himself that he would sign for 25 cents for anybody who pulled off the road and wondered what he was doing. He walked long story short, he walked from Abilene, Texas to Boston and then talked his way onto a boat oh my God. and then sailed uh, from Boston to um, 
to Germany, to uh, Hamburg, Germany, where he disembarked and he walked from Hamburg, Germany, all the way to Istanbul through, you know, 11 countries in Eastern Europe before he, before he wound up in Istanbul and went, when, and he would have kept going straight through Persia for heaven's sakes and Asia minor. Um, But he, he wound up getting thrown in jail in Istanbul because he had no papers and the, and the Turkish police in 1931 didn't take too kindly to a, you know, uh, a backwards walking Texan <laughs> trying to <laughs> trying to pass through their city. So they threw him in a place called murder jail. And, uh, and every day they dragged him before a judge and he, they couldn't communicate. He didn't, he knew right. no Turkish. And so he tried to pantomime. I'm walking backward across, the, you know, no, around the world, no but, but it, it felt, you know, nobody could understand what he's saying. So he thought he was going to die in jail. And, uh, and to his good fortune, Within a short amount of time, he heard someone speaking English out the window. Yes. And he starts shouting, hey, I'm, I'm an American. Please help me. And he gets this guy's attention. And, and it's his good luck that it's the, uh, the assistant um, ambassador for the United States. And so they get uh, the full power of the U.S. government to free him from this Turkish prison. And the ambassador says, yes. we'll get you out of jail, but you... I'm not going to let you walk through Asia Minor because I don't want that blood on my hands. They, they, he was like, you realize that number one, it's a desert. <laughs> and there are a lot of people in Persia who, who, who might just want to kill, kill you, you, you know, yeah. no good reason. Uh, so he had to turn back and, and, the, and, the, and, you know, it wasn't even the end of it. He ran into all sorts of trouble. He became unwittingly became um uh, a drug mule. He, he, he wound up importing a ton of heroin what? into the United States. Yeah. Just got wrapped up with, with a nefarious kind of like Italian huckster who was trying to import some heroin. And, and, you know, he thought they were, they were rugs, but everybody's pretty sure they were, they were, you know, Trump Hold on. Loaded with, he with, thought they were yeah. rugs air quote. Yeah. Turkish rugs. Oh my right. God. <laughs> so, uh, what was your- but, but he makes it back. Yeah. What? He, he makes yeah. it back to the U.S. and 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 he's he's a little pissed that he had to turn around. But also, he'd been on the road. For, his wife had divorced him. She just sent a letter to him that caught up with him in Rhode Island for heaven's sake. Said like, "That's it. You you know, you left us right. in, the, in the Great Depression. Bye um, bye. I've lo- I, yeah, bye bye. She had lost a bunch of weight. The daughter who was in her teens was like, "Dad, you got to come home. Mom is like a waif." She's a shadow of what she used to be. And he had a moment where he could have turned back, but he was, he was, he was, uh, obsessed. He was, this was his mission in life. And he thought he could, he thought he could make uh, a fortune doing it. That's why, that's why he did it to begin with. But when he, when he got back, he only had four bucks, uh, in his pocket. That was all he had to show for this trip. He thought if I could only write a book about it, then that's where the money will come in. He tried for 30 years, never. never really wrote a book. When he finally got it together, it was like far too late. People had forgot about him. And he was, uh, he, he tried to sell, like he set up a card table to sell his books at his own sister's funeral for heaven's sakes. Like <gasps> he was Stop not, um, he was not the, he was a little uncouth, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. Like <laughs> a little unsavory. What did you, what yeah. did you love the most about him? When you wrote, because I, I, well, I'm guessing that yeah. when you write these, you fall in love with certain aspects of them 
or you're drawn to them. What did you love yeah. about him or maybe hate? This guy, um, this guy did, uh, did something incredible. Like, all right. So that was 1931. We are now 2021, 90 years later. Yeah. Uh, his, you know, pick up a, a current copy of the Guinness Book World Records and, and flip over to, you know, longest extent of reverse pedestrianism, which I think <laughs> is what his record is. And you'll see the name Plenty Lawrence Wingo, uh, who uh, who walked more than 8,000 kilometers backward, which uh, that record stands to this day. I love him because he wouldn't quit. And he was not the smartest guy. He was not the most savvy uh, huckster there is. He was really good natured and good hearted. He was just just trying to make some money, and, and he thought he had a really good idea to do that. And it turns out it wasn't great. But along the way, he got into so much trouble. Like everywhere he turned, he just he kept you know he put his foot his, his own his foot in his own mouth. He would um, wind up hanging out with nefarious characters who would take all his money. money. And it would just, just screw him. It just happened over and over and over again. He, t- he almost walked around the top of the brand new empire state state building. He'd like, they were going to, he was going to walk the ledge. You know, it, it had just opened in 1929 and, and plenty Wingo found himself in New York trying to make money. And uh, so like all these, just inc- it's, it's like, American history uh, yeah. in a book. Yeah. Uh, all of this, all of this stuff that happened in the twenties and thirties that you don't read about when you when you read about the Great Depression. That's what was interesting to me. Like, you know, the the um, the the bloodshed that was going on in nineteen thirty one. More cops what? were killed in the line of duty in nineteen thirty one than in all of American history. Shut up! Like even today. Even in the 1980s during the crack epidemic, you know, more cops that were killed in the line of duty in 1931 than than today. This is an incredibly violent period in American history that nobody really thinks about. Well, the one thing that I was drawn to about your book is, you know, a lot of great things came from the hardship of the Great Depression. And even though he didn't achieve maybe the success he was looking for, he did achieve some success. He's in the Guinness Book of World Records. And I think it's um, always interesting to look at like individuals definition of success. It can be uh, subjective, right? Oh, absolutely. And and also, look, he at the end of it, when it was all over, he, he, he acknowledged, you know, Four bucks. Not, not much to show for this. He, he kept saying, I thought I was going to get some sponsorships. I really tried. I thought Buster Brown shoes. I thought Goodyear was going to, but no. Uh, but he said, well, looking back, what I've done is 1931, when, when 8 million Americans out of 150 million people in the US, 8 million Americans were riding the rails back and forth across the country to try to find work at a time when Bankers were, you know, uh, offing themselves by leaping out of tall buildings. Like this was a desperate period. Yeah, he got to travel. <laughs> he yeah. he on his own dime, making money for himself. He walked all the way across the United States, first from Abilene, Texas to Boston, and then on the second leg after Istanbul, yeah. when he came back to the U.S., 
he, he made his way to Los Angeles, uh, to Santa Monica, rather, uh-huh. dropped a pebble off the Santa Monica Pier and walked backward from there to Abilene, Texas, to Europe, took a boat to Europe, walked from Hamburg right. to Istanbul, for heaven's sakes, through Prague and through, you know, These are big uh, things. Uh, uh, Germany and the Black Forest and on and on. He saw things lots of Americans of that mm. day never saw. And... You know, he lived hand to mouth selling these postcards and he didn't return with much money. But for 518 days, he had one hell of an adventure <laughs> and, um, and, and, and nobody could ever take that from him. You know, there's a sad moment at the end of his life. Like the last time he made the newspapers in any kind of big way, he had somehow gotten a hold of an Associated Press reporter. And the reporter wrote a story that was that ran in newspapers across the country, 1994, about five years before Plenty Wingo died. Uh, he wrote that he had some medical bills that were mounting, and his wife was in bad health, and he was trying to sell his feet. What? Um, yeah, so he was basically saying, when I die, the person with the highest bid can take my feet for a museum. Did anybody want his for feet? However you want to use. Did anybody want his feet? No, no one, no one claimed uh, the feet. You know, of the he had to have had, <laughs> he had to have had a very um, healthy ego to, oh, yeah, I, mean, I mean, my God. Right. Okay. Absolutely. Let's- and he thought he was, he thought he was so cool. He thought, Look, he thought everybody wants to hear my stories. Like every hotel he showed up at, he would walk in and be like, I'm the guy you've heard about. I'm the guy who's walking backwards. Like gather around. Let me tell you some tales. And sometimes that was, sometimes that was cool. And it was met with like uh, adulation later in life. Like for the, you know, that ended in 1932 from 1932 until when, until his death in, in the 1990s. It kind of rubbed people the wrong way because he only mm. wanted to talk about his Self. backward walk around the world. Yes. So his nieces and nephews who were teenagers when he was an old man, they remember, oh, yeah, Uncle Plenty, you know, he'd always come. He'd always want to bend your ear about that time he walked backward around the world. <laughs> so is- he just never let it rest. This is like his it was his moment. It was yeah. his, the, the pinnacle of his life. So let me ask you this. To- I'm going to switch it back to you. Do you feel like yeah. you've hit the pinnacle of your life? Yeah, dude, when you're on a podcast, oh God, you're I not supposed not. to be chugging a LaCroix when I ask you a question. <laughs> <laughs> I sure hope not. Just I'm 43 out, years everybody. old, for heaven's sakes. Uh, <laughs> I almost did a I mean, the, the Pulitzer is um, pretty great. So what's next for you? Yeah, well, I mean, it, look, let's not beat around the bush. Like it, that, 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 that was, I was a Pulitzer finalist, right? Care. So the, it. it means Just you, it. it means you got close. It, it's basically like you, 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 you're the second place, Whatever. you know? Uh, Whatever. So a real deal would be nice. Like let's, maybe that would be a crowning achievement. I don't know. Absolutely not. I, I just, I was talking with Fran Capo yesterday. This is completely random. I said Fran Capo has a world record for the f- fastest talking woman in the world. She can speak 603 words per minute, which is an incredible pace. She also holds nine world records. She did a book signing on the oh top gosh. of Mount Kilimanjaro. She did a book signing, the deepest underwater book signing at the wreck site of the Titanic. 
What? It's insane, right? Okay. And you you read that stuff and you think, who are these people? Like, who would want to do that? You know? Um, but then I had the funnest time talking to Fran yesterday for an hour, where afterwards, like my face was cramping because I was smiling Aww. so hard. And here's what she told me. I think of life, and she's getting up in years. She she moved to Florida from New York in April. And, and normally when people move to Florida, it's to retire. Mm -hmm. If you've lived somewhere, you retire down here. And it's time to start thinking about the rocking chair and chilling out and all that. Not Fran. She was like, I've already held an alligator. I've swam with sharks. I've swam with manatees. I've dove in devil's den, which is an incredibly perilous cave. And she was like, what else can I do in Florida? I want more adventure. And, um, but, but you, you, she said to me, yeah. I think of life as a giant buffet and I want to taste everything. And isn't that a beautiful yeah. thing? You know, you meet some people like this and it reminds you like, you know, maybe we shouldn't be taking this so seriously. And uh, maybe it would benefit us all if we could just have a little fun and let ourselves believe once in a while that, that nothing is impossible. And maybe it opens some opportunities to do some crazy shit like walk backwards around the world or do a book signing at the wreck site of the Titanic or whatever the case might be. Or maybe it just uh, leads you to some little nugget of happiness somewhere. But um, I hope to heavens that I'm not that I'm not that I'm not close to my pinnacle and that I have lots of maybe not world records, but like a lot more to do and to contribute to, <laughs> to society uh, on down the road. Uh, OK, that was the most perfect closing statement. <laughs> that was Good. so awesome. Thank you for being on the show. <laughs> Listeners, hey, in our notes, we're going to have links to uh, Ben's books. So check them out and definitely check out that article too. It's amazing. And thank you, my friend, for being on the show today. Thank you, uh, Sarah, for having me. Go Bengals, Bearcats. Uh, Reds. What else are we? Reds, yeah. <laughs> FC Cincinnati. I try to hit them all. I yeah. don't need, I'm sure I missed somebody. Sorry, everybody. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. This is very good. Great to see you again. You too. I want to thank everyone behind the scenes, especially Adrian Donica and the team at Gwyn Sound. Also, please find us on social media outlets at Fail Forward Pod. <laughs>